This is a Clark University podcast. The sound of whales is, of course, kind of synonymous with environmental issues and concerns. And we think of these as beautiful, long passages of sound that, you know, you can listen to on a New Age album. But listening to them up up on this coast, you would hear the hissing of the hydrophone, you'd hear other sounds in the water, and then the, the actual whale emission, which in this case was a humpback whale, would be kind of short or broken or inconsistent or happening at different times. And there was not a disappointment so much as a kind of confounding nature to that experience, which I think is part of what I was trying to make sense of, is the way that that different experience spoke to what we bring to a a conservation project and what we bring to the ways that we experience nature. It's also beautiful. It's just beautiful in a way that you're not expecting it to be. And it's stranging in a way that is important. Max Ritz is a geography professor at Clark University. He's used acoustics as a key component in his research, using sound to understand social and environmental change. Max's fascination with the topic started in 2011 in Canada, listening to the whales. So in 2011, I went to the north coast of British Columbia to go to the terminus, what I thought was the terminus, of the Northern uh, Gateway Pipeline, which is the Enbridge shipping project that was going to send oil tankers to markets in China and California and use the coast of BC as a conduit, basically. It wasn't the terminus then, it was it was a key route. And this area that I went to also happened to have a whale research station on it, uh, an island in Gitgat territory, Gitgat First Nations territory, where to study whales, these researchers listened to the underwater surroundings. And they listened through hydrophones, which are these like repurposed military technologies that basically source sand from the underwater world you know, measuring vocalizations and converting them from sound waves into voltage, which can then be broadcast on speakers that humans can hear. So it's a really interesting technology. It it converts from underwater sound to basically airborne sound. When I studied that project, that whale research station, I realized that alongside the relevance of the North Coast for this conduit of shipping was also the relevance of the area for whale populations and other kinds of sonic cultures as well. The very fact of the sound can be used as a documentation of the species abundance in the area. So the rising numbers of humpback whales in the coast was an index of its critical whale habitat status. And that status helps protect the area from shipping. That's what the project was really about. Max finds himself pondering how sound can be used to make sense of the things that we expect to happen. There are many inroads to geography via acoustics and sound, from questions of indigenous politics and the role of music and song, to political ecological issues, like the relevance of noise to the way that whales move through space and need to be conserved appropriately. The conservation needs to involve acoustics in what are called quiet areas, marine protected areas that actually establish low levels of volume from shipping and industrial activity to, you know, various kinds of urban politics like the role of noise in urban protests, the role of noise abatement campaigns and conservative movements against social difference to creative ways of making geographies as a practice. So, you know, using a podcast, for example, or using a sound map to collect perceptions of how things have changed over the last period over the pandemic, for example. So you saw a number of geographers 
take field recordings of how quiet it was in London during the pandemic as an index of declining social behaviors and presence in urban spaces. I'm Melissa Hansen, a producer in Clark's communications office, and this is Challenge Change. Though sound is a central feature of Max's work, his interests as a geographer expand beyond acoustics alone. My interest as a geographer aren't ultimately in sound, they're in the prevailing politics that we need to study, like capitalism, colonialism, social rights, social justice, environmental rights, environmental justice. And for me, sound is just a unique way to study those things. But I think there's a danger in assuming that, you know, sound is like the thing that we should care about when in fact it's more that it's a gateway into those other issues, but albeit a kind of unusual one. The prevailing political concern that I would have as a geographer is, is like indigenous rights and indigenous justice. That focus led Max to work with the Gitkat Nation in Canada, where he analyzed the songs created by an indigenous heavy metal band. Eventually, he'd like to expand this work to include indigenous communities in Massachusetts. I was working with Gitkat on a scientific project, which is this eco-acoustics baseline. It was a community-led project to, to digitize these sounds that would suggest the present ecological realities before development, so that if there were disruptions, we could have this record to point to. That's what a baseline is effectively for, is a way of comparing different moments in time. So that project was an extensive one. It took over a year and a half just to do the research, let alone the writing afterward. And during that process, I was immersed in this amazing community and I got to meet all these great people. And among them was Spencer Greening. So he was a really, and is a really important political figure in the community. And as a teenager, he was also a heavy metal head. What I was interested in is how his present persona and political ambitions weren't separate from that initial moment of music and how you could read into the music. How the four of them, as young people, were negotiating a really interesting environmental context and political context through music. And that's where the heavy metal thing came in. And also in doing that research, I came to kind of appreciate more how that musical form, which we think of as kind of just, you know, silly and teenaged and ultimately unconcerned with the world, happens to occur in many contexts of indigenous environmental struggle. So you find heavy metal music in Peru, and you find it in Colombia, and you find it in Mexico, and you find it in Indonesia. And sure enough, these are also contexts that have had extremely disruptive environmental processes happen on them, from mining to industrialization of the countryside to you know, forced migration. So they were remediating these social concerns through the musical form, which I think was part of also making it accessible to younger people around them and their audiences. And, and the success of this one band that I looked at, I think speaks to the kind of global appeal of this musical form to young indigenous men and women around the world. Through music and friendships with the nation, Max learned about their most pressing political and environmental concerns. Definitely that industrial development proceed in a way that doesn't respect their rights and title and their social ambitions and their environmental stewardship goals. That's been the issue that, you know, again, forms the context of the book that I'm finishing now and that form the dissertation research context. And with that, I think there's this legacy of colonialism and the way that paternalistic, arrogant, expert-led ways of thinking of the environment have dominated the way that the government continues to interact with First Nations up and down the coast. There are many issues that communities have, but the one that I focused on with regard to my research was around energy development politics. Max is working on finishing a book that he hopes will reach audiences in the next year. The title is A Resonant Ecology. 
The book is trying to make sense of industrial development. It's a way of making sense of that problem through intersecting moments of what I'm calling sonic culture. So there's five studies that go up and down the coast that involve different communities responding to the bigger questions through these situated encounters with sound. Whether that's listening or sound making or responding to noise or talking about sound in sort of sustained ways and the different cases speak to those moments. Part of what I'm trying to say is that this approach that sound offers can get us into some of that breadth of the effects of development in ways that other approaches might not be able to. That has to do with the histories of sound and the way that we listen, but also the materiality of the thing itself, its ability to transit across spaces. And you know, we think of like science fiction and horror movies, for example, and how sound can contain the suggestion of an eerie presence that isn't even there. Or again, with, with music, how it conveys history by itself being in the present. There's different ways in which sound models these different kinds of thresholds and, and that that gives it a power to people who are trying to make sense of imminent changes in their environments. Recently, Max has been studying sound and smart technology, research that aligns with contemporary concerns about privacy and surveillance. The collective know-how is something that I think is going to become really important in the coming years. It's interesting to talk about how people listen and how they make sense of the world through sound and also how processes that we can observe, like the way that digital capitalism works, have a really powerful presence in our lives in ways we don't always consider until we start talking about them and then we're quite surprised. When you are speaking into an Amazon Echo, you're also training that device to better understand your behaviors for consumer products and demands. You're perfecting its ability to sell you things. We lack a kind of social vocabulary for describing the effects that these things can have. And again, how geography can advance languages or theoretical ideas that can speak to those kinds of losses, but also those kinds of capacities still. To learn more about geography at Clark, visit clarku.edu slash geography. Challenge Change is produced by Andrew Hart and Melissa Hansen for Clark University. Find other episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. As always, thank you for listening, and we hope your 2023 is off to a great start. One, two, three. Clark! <laughs>